And we welcome you to the Friday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. It's wall-to-wall sports on today's program. We begin with a conversation about a beloved sports-related event in Kenosha that celebrates its 60th anniversary this year, just as it undergoes some dramatic changes. In part two... An interview from the archives just in time for Sunday's big Super Bowl. A look back at the history of the Super Bowl with one of the authors of Super Bowl Gold. Here's part one. And for this portion of WGTD's morning show, we're going to be talking about uh, something that's been quite an institution uh, here in uh, the Kenosha community, namely Holy Rosary's Sports Night, which has been around for decades. And... uh, on a number of occasions has, has meant uh, uh, visits from some really big, big names in, in the world of, of athletics and sports. And it's always been an event uh, that was about celebrating athletic endeavors and ex- athletic excellence and particularly supporting and lifting up and celebrating uh, the great young athletes in our uh, community. We have two people who are uh, the co-chairs of uh, Holy Rosary's Sports Night Greg Powell and Tony Galici, and uh, I invited them to come onto the program uh, because uh, Holy Rosary's Sports Night is changing gears in fairly dramatic fashion uh, from the way uh, it has been sort of doing business over the last uh, last several decades. And we're going to be talking about some of the things that have prompted this and the way in which they are intending to uh, move forward and to to do some 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 exciting things, but uh, a bit different from the way Sports Night has been in in the past. Uh, Greg Powell, Tony Galici, we welcome both of you to the morning show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Glad that you can be here. So before we talk about what's changing, uh, I think it would be interesting to kind of sketch out for our listeners, particularly for the sake of folks not from Kenosha, who uh, might not know anything about this uh, amazing legacy. Uh, who wants to kind of summarize the history of Holy Rosary's uh, Sports Night? So in 1954, um, parishioners uh, had an idea to do a testimonial dinner uh, to raise funds for the school uh, and eventually down the road the athletic programs. But in 1954, they had a testimonial dinner uh, for Dan Buccioni, who was the heavyweight contender. Uh, for a heavyweight boxing title wow. back then. Um, they started that, that process by bringing in uh, athletes. Um, in the second annual, they brought in Alan Amici, and our trophy that our athletes uh, receive are named, is named after Alan Amici. Then they went on to Chuck Jaskowitz, a very well-regarded high school uh, football coach in Kenosha. They then looked at saying, you know what, let's go back to the celebrity route, and they were lucky to get some boxer named Rocky Marciano. Um, <laughs> wow! And 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 they were they were very successful in doing that in 1957. Uh, and over the years, they they continued to bring in um, professional type athletes uh, to the program. And in 1957, they introduced the Outstanding Catholic Male Athlete Award. Um, so you had to be an Italian male Catholic athlete, um, and they selected that in 1957. Over the years, they changed that, and they went to just the, the uh, outstanding male athlete. Um, and they did that for, for many years. And after the 25th annual, uh, the committee decided to add the female athlete mm. to, to the docket. Um, so 
for for 25 years then we had the male and the female athlete and that was just the city of Kenosha um, and after the 50th we had a, we had a lot of inquiries about why don't we include the county schools in that selection we talked it over with our selection committee and for the 51st annual we added the county schools um, so to date um, we include all eight county high schools in our selection um, up until last year still did the celebrity uh, guests uh, that we were able to secure. Um, so that kind of was the how the program evolved from a testimonial dinner to raise funds for the parish to a full-blown sports night where we brought in professional athletes, recognized our high school athletes. And those proceeds uh, still benefited uh, our athletic programs at Holy Roji up until 10 years ago when, when they did the consolidation with All Saints. And it helped with our athletic facilities uh, that we had. Right. So what was the process by which these outstanding athletes would be chosen? I mean, I mean, who, whoever would be named in a given year, uh, what are we talking about in terms of that selection process? Yeah, so it's a really interesting process. We have actually an independent selection committee. The committee is independent from the Holy Rosary Executive Committee that runs Sports Night. So the committee is comprised of maybe retired athletic directors, you know, other uh, high school or not high school, but uh, college coaches, you know, people in that kind of genre of work, if you will, people that know sports are dialed into, you know, local, you know, high school action athletes, you know, different sports and things like that. And those guys come together. We invite them to um, Holy Rosary for actually a selection day. Mm. And typically it had been done in, in December. That's going to change now that the program's changing a little bit. But we'll still keep that formula. And all of the athletic directors present their, their best of the best from their particular high school after, you know, local discussion with coaches and teachers and whatnot because there is an application process for selecting uh, the athlete in terms of, you know, not only – prowess on the field in a particular sport or sports, but also academics and community service. Mm. And that's all considered, you know, as like the entire package, you know, when uh, selecting the top high school male and female athlete of the year. So they all go kind of go through the process and um, kind of vote, if you will. Typically, somebody from the selection committee steps up to lead the process. And um, we walk away with a male winner and a female winner, hmm. and then the communication with them goes on from there. So, so this is an award that actually awards more than just athletic excellence itself, but you're really wanting to lift up athletes who are also terrific young citizens, if you will, in the community. Absolutely. It's a big part of it. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Uh, you touched on just a couple of the big names. Do you want to name a couple of the others that have been – really fun guests who were part of this over the years? So, so for those that, that know their sports, uh, we had some guy named Joe Gargiola. Wow. Who, who was a, a big um, sportscaster back yeah. in the late, late early 50s, late 50s. And a catcher before that, I right. think, right? Yeah. Um, we had a quarterback from Green Bay in 1960 called named Bart Starr. Really? Um, <laughs> we, we, were, we were fortunate enough to secure Bart Starr. Um, a lot of people... Uh, think in 1963 was one of our marquee programs with Hank Aaron, Mike Ditka, John McHale, Ray Nitsky, Fuzzy Thurston. Um, just a an all-star lineup. When you see a lot of the pictures of Sports Night, you see that picture a lot. Yeah. Um, we had uh, D- Dick Butkus and Bob Gibson in 1968, along with Fergie Jenkins, um, Pete Rose in 1970, uh, Joe Torre, Franco Harris. Uh, George Foster, Joe Montana, 
So you're seeing a lot of a lot of names you typically wouldn't see in this area. Right. And right. we were able to do that, or they were, I wasn't on that committee back then. They were able to do that because uh, one of the committee members uh, was a writer for the Chicago Daily News, ah. uh, Pete Turkle. And when he would interview these athletes, he would say, hey, what are you doing in February? We have an event in Kenosha. Would you be willing to come? Sure. And he had a way of talking these guys into doing it. Wow. Wow. Well, as your news release indicated, uh, we're kind of living in a different world now. And uh, the world of professional sports is is not what it once was, particularly not the way it was 50 years ago when all of this started. So uh, tell me about the conversations that have taken place more recently in terms of that, those kind of changes and what's prompted you then to kind of shift the focus uh, of this event. Yeah, I can start out a little bit here. You know, it's interesting how it's evolved with the with the teams themselves, the professional sports teams. I like to kind of describe it as this kind of this moat that's sort of built around these teams. <laughs> Whereas in the past it's been a lot easier perhaps to, you know, get to, you know, the team organizers, maybe the personnel person, you know, etc. Now there's all types of barriers and things like that, that like that to actually getting into the team and making some sort of a contact. Um, as it's kind of evolved over the years, we've been pretty lucky that we've had some key people that have had maybe some experience uh, in doing some events, you know, in addition to ours, and they have access to, like, guys in the Chicago Bears, maybe the Green Bay Packers, so on and so forth. But as that kind of evolved, um, it even became a little bit more difficult for them to procure athletes, and that trickled down to us and, um, you know, and so on goes the story. Yeah. Even thinking about college athletes, um, Al D. Simone, one of our charter members, um, he was a, a big, well, he's actually on the UW Board of Regents for quite some time. Mm. And actually, didn't he help fund the quarterback scholarship mm-hmm. for uh, the UW Badgers? And, you know, so there was always that in and somebody that was willing to do Al a favor to get us something, somebody from Wisconsin. Sure. Well, you know, as, you know, time went on and, you know, unfortunately Al passed away, you know, several years ago, those types of con- contacts meant a lot. And when they fall away, mm-hmm. despite trying to kind of keep them going, uh, it became more difficult um, in addition to some of the NCAA rule changes that mm-hmm. they got very skittish on and whatnot and try to kind of keep us at a little bit of an arm's distance. And, um, and more recently, the image and likeness rules um, where actually college athletes can get paid for their time and effort and appearances and things like that, which is something that we didn't necessarily have to contend with years right. ago. Yeah. There's a whole lot of things that kind of come together, don't it? So, so describe what sports night is going to be going forward from here. So what we'll be doing, we will still be selecting the athletes of the year. Uh, athletic directors will receive their application notice sometime in March. We give them six or eight weeks to put that together. Uh, they'll turn those into us. We'll disseminate those to the committee. The uh, committee will review them for a couple weeks, uh, formulate their questions. We bring the selection committee and the athletic directors together on May 18th. They will ask their questions of the athletic directors, uh, have to clarify what maybe some of the activities some of the students were in, some of the extracurricular activities that they were in, and the, the committee will make a recommendation on who, who they feel the athletes are. And, and some years we've had co-winners. Mm. Um, other years, we, we've had one winner. Um, so it's not unusual to have co-winners at, at, the, at the event. Um, they have a scoring system, a scoring system that nobody from Sports Night knows <laughs> or understands or sure. cares to know. Right, um, right. That's their, their way of doing it. We, 
we give them the information, they put their system in place, and um, they do their stuff behind closed doors. We facilitate it. Right. That's all we do, um, and we announce it uh, once that happens. So once they select those those winners, we'll work out with the high schools how we actually make that announcement. In, in years past, we would let that athlete know right there uh, that afternoon that they were the winner and uh, get ready for sports night because it was coming six weeks down the road. Um, we'll work at the high schools, maybe do some type of an announcement at their senior awards banquet or mm. an assembly they may have sure, uh, and work it in through there. Um, we'll also do it on our Facebook page and our website to get the word out. Um, so I think it's, while it's a little different, I think we owe it to the community to keep this tradition going. Mm-hmm. That uh, it's a tradition that started back in 1957. Uh, people still talk about the award. Those that maybe have won it, those that thought maybe they should have won it and didn't, <laughs> and why they should have won it. Right. Um, but I think it's a it's a, a tradition well uh, well deserved, and we're going to do our best part to keep it rolling. I I I think that is a very very laudable goal, and uh, I can tell you know how thoughtfully you have uh, approached this, and and I think it makes all the sense in the world. And glad to see that Sports Night is going forward from here. So. Tony Galici and Greg Powell, thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show, and best wishes going forward with Holy Rosary Sports Night. You're listening to The Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Part two of today's program is an interview from the archives recorded and initially broadcast back in 2015. Well, if there is a football fan for whom you need to purchase a gift this holiday season, uh, I heartily recommend a magnificent new book that is just out from Sports Illustrated called Super Bowl Gold, 50 Years of the Big Game. It looks back over the near half century of Super Bowls that have been played over the decades, and it helps chart the history of the game. And uh, one of the things that we come away from as we see this book is how drastically the game has changed. That is the Super Bowl itself, how drastically it has changed from that first Super Bowl waged back in 1967 um, when the Packers defeated the Chiefs in resounding fashion. Uh, There is very little about that game that uh, could possibly have foretold just the the, uh, incredible extravaganza which it would eventually become. Uh, Austin Murphy has done uh, uh, very, very good work in the beautifully written introduction which adorns this book, and uh, he's here to tell us more about it. Once again, it's titled Super Bowl Gold, 50 Years of the Big Game, and it comes to us from Sports Illustrated, where he is a senior writer. Austin Murphy, we welcome you to the morning show. Uh, thank you, Greg. That was uh, well done, and, and we appreciate uh, the kind words. Um, I'm right with you. It's uh, it's astonishing to look back uh it, it, time has really flown. Uh, one of my favorite pictures, uh, for purposes of comparing, you know, where we are and where we've been, was uh, oh, on the right-hand page. This is early on. There is a snapshot of I think it was just a media day, which has turned into this uh, frenzy with you know several thousand correspondents. And in some ways, it's sort of a it's an apt metaphor. Uh, or a reflection of what the game has become. It's it's um, it is excess uh, uh, embodied. And on the the page next to it, there's Joe Namath in um, I guess what would be the '60s equivalent of board shorts, and he's uh, you know he's talking to a few journalists. I think it's on the beach 
in uh, outside the Fountain Blue Hotel, and it was right around the time he was guaranteeing victory, uh, the Jets' victory over the Colts, which which in fact he pulled off. He had just a, kind of an ordinary game, but the Jets did beat the Colts, and and it lent the game a lot of legitimacy. But they were certainly simpler times. Absolutely, there is one lone television man uh, with a microphone in Mr. Namath's face and a rather antiquated-looking TV camera we see in the foreground of the picture and a scattering of a few people in the background. And, and you're right, the the opposite page of that spread shows a modern-day uh, media day for the Super Bowl, and it is a mass of humanity. And uh, right there in a nutshell is a, it, one very clear sense of how this game has become what what somebody, I think it was you, uh, said is now an international cultural extravaganza. Uh, as you look over this history, how much of uh, your feelings about that are regret? That is, do you spend a lot of time regretting that uh, what was in the beginning a, a fairly simple game between two great football teams has become this other thing? I mean, do you regret that at all? Not that you're responsible for it, but... Uh... No, I think uh, there was a time, uh, perhaps when I was younger, when I, there would be resentment at, for instance, being sent into media day with instructions to, you know, find a fresh angle or try to get somebody by themselves. And it's just impossible. Um, and I think now I'm just more, you walk into it and let the experience wash over you and kind of appreciate uh, and not feel one way or the other about it. It's just, it is what it is and it's where we are. Um, it's interesting. I was the college football writer at Sports Illustrated for a decade or more in the aughts. Um, I've had a couple of, uh, uh, of turns doing college football and wrote a book called Saturday Rules, uh, really making the case for why the college game is more fun than, you know, the corporate colossus NFL, the no fun league. It's huge, anodyne, impersonal. And yet our focus groups, uh, repeatedly have told us that uh, you know people people cannot get enough of the NFL, and so uh, <laughs> here I am, and <laughs> I'm not agreeing or disagreeing. I'm just uh, I'm finding the stories in each locker room and making human connections, and uh, you know grateful to have a job in print media in the year 2015. Right. Uh, in your, your introduction uh, called The Fantastic Voyage, which I think is, is beautifully written and really, really fascinating, um, you quote somebody as calling uh, the Super Bowl America's last great campfire. I think it was a, a marketing officer of, from the NFL. Uh, you must think that's an interesting quote if you include it in your introduction. What do you think Mr. Waller is getting to uh, when he characterizes sure. the Super Bowl in this way as America's last great campfire? Yeah, well, first, thanks for the kind words. Um, it's I, I, I remember making the point right around that place in the essay. I, I used that quote just to make the point that this game in particular, this event has long ago, long since sort of transcended sport, achieved escape velocity. It is now, um, it's, it's a global event. So we, we marvel at it. That's for that, for that reason alone. And how far it's come from that 
you know, that first Super Bowl, which was really just a glorified exhibition game between, you know, the two champions of different leagues. The what happens in every Super Bowl, the the sort of things that we remember and talk about become a a, a national currency. You know, the, the Monday and for you know for for years and decades afterward, they're commemorated in books like this one and on NFL films. We you know we don't we're not just talking about what happened during the game, and hopefully we got a good game. Half the time you get a a pretty good game, and 25% of the time I think you get a dog game or a route and the other times like last year you get a really good game and you're and and you know that actually lives up to the hype but it doesn't have to live up to the hype because it is also a a discussion about the Super Bowl halftime show I have a another essay in the book talking about the evolution of the, the halftime show which was a lot of fun um you know the film festival that is the discussion over you know who had the best commercial, um, you know, and who did what kind of a job on the national anthem. So there's a lot going on aside from you know what happened on third and long. Mm-hmm. I uh, am intrigued by uh, some of the photographs that capture that very first Super Bowl, which I think you remind us was not even called a Super Bowl at the time. That that name got attached a little <laughs> bit later, but. Um, among the most striking things is to see just the smattering of fans that are in the stands. I mean, it, it appears like there weren't all that many people in attendance to see the Packers beat the Chiefs. And, uh, and of course, that's in, in very stark contrast to, to what we see now, where it's probably one of the hardest tickets in all the world to get. It is. And I know that I think the, um, the opening double-truck photograph is from the first Super Bowl, and it, the captains are meeting midfield, and it's deliberately, there's this ocean of turf around them. There's only one zebra out there. You know, now there would be television cameras, and it would be a, it would be a production unto itself, and it's quite deliberate, um, you know, just to show you. It reflects how, how small bore it was compared to where we are now. Mm. The point is well taken. Right. I appreciate a, another point made in your, your introduction uh, in which you try to explain why there is this ferocious intensity when it comes to our fascination to the Super Bowl, our, our, our interest in it. Even people who otherwise are not particularly interested in, in professional football but who find themselves drawn to this game. Not every single person, but of course a whole lot of people just cannot stay away. Uh, one of the points uh, you make in your introduction is uh, by contrasting the way the NFL f- figures out its ultimate championship with, for instance, Major League Baseball or the National Basketball Association. Uh, it's it's a relatively obvious point and yet one that I don't think is all that often made or as clearly as you make it. Uh, what is it about the Super Bowl that stands apart from these other uh, professional sports leagues? Yeah, you know, they, I agree with you, and I, I it did seem self-evident. Anyway, what you're you're getting at is that these other championships, uh, you know, these are best of seven series, and the you know football. The beauty of football is that it is you know it's 
uh, it's one game. It's a one-off. How, how are you going to do on this particular day? So we, we, we will decide a champion not over the next two weeks, but over the next three and a half hours, like four hours with the added commercials and halftime. And so it's a, it's the, the drama is distilled. Um, but, but on the, you know, to be completely honest, the, you know, another thing that, um, makes the game, uh, more picante for, uh, a lot of viewers is the fact that they have they have money on the game, or they bought a square, you know, on uh, in bought a square. Uh, the NFL doesn't, you know, prefers not to talk about it, but you know, a lot of people have action on the Super Bowl that uh, that jacks up its appeal as well. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Austin Murphy, who's responsible for the introduction to a really magnificent new book from Sports Illustrated called Super Bowl Gold, 50 Years of the Big Game. Um, I think the way this book is put together is really quite ingenious. And uh, I think it's uh, terrific the way we sort of can attack this game from a lot of different angles. Um can you just tell us who had a hand in the construction of the overall book and in you know, making the decisions about, about the, the different elements uh, that are represented here? Yeah, you know, these are um, colleagues of mine, um, former SI editors. We've now, I mean, what's going on is that uh, in print media, we're really, uh, over the last... Uh, decade or so, we've been really challenged to uh, find different ways. Uh, it's, it's a more challenging environment, so now we're doing more books. We're, we're looking inward and seeing that we actually have some fantastic resources um, you know, in the Sports Illustrated Library. It's humbling for a writer to admit, but the, this book is carried by amazing photography. Um, and I'm always, uh, you know, I'll see the photographers before the game. I like to take a lap uh, during warm-ups, say an hour before, even if it's cold, and maybe overhear something. Rarely you'll get something in the notebook that you can use for your game store, but I'm always running into our photographers down there, and I've seen these, these people for decades, and it's often, uh, you know, we will, we will exchange good-natured abuse because uh, they believe that, my job is easier because I can actually miss something and then catch up on it, you know, debrief the players and coaches afterwards. But if they miss the game-winning touchdown, it's a big problem. Um, so, anyway, they, they've always done magnificent work. It's called Sports Illustrated for a reason. Um, but, yeah, to your point, it's, it's, they decided to break the, the book into quarters. So each sort of epoch uh, of the league is, you know, we'd get Super Bowls 1 through X11 uh, in the first quarter, 8 through XX1V in the next quarter. And as you can see, another of the things that I don't care for about the NFL is these these Roman numerals. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, please, can we do away with the Roman numerals? I think, 
you know, they were sort of putting on airs early on. It's like they, they wanted to to invest it with a dignity or something. But grandiosity it, that in the early going it maybe didn't have, <laughs> or people didn't see the grandiosity. And yeah, now we're fine. Now you're fine, and you can you can get rid of it. It's like adding, uh, you know, spelling your shop shop with a O P P E. You're trying a little too hard. We don't we don't need the Roman numerals. Right. So maybe I could, I could just learn them uh, and I'd stop <laughs> yeah. complaining about it's, them. It's probably one of the only uh, facets of modern American life where we still use Roman numerals. Uh, uh, also in the book, uh, with, with every we, – we have uh, space devoted to each and every Super Bowl and uh, an excerpt from the Sports Illustrated article written at the time, another little interesting column called Just the Facts, which includes important statistics from the game and uh, always a photograph of that particular Super Bowl ring, the, what the Sports Illustrated cover looked like. And another thing I really appreciate, and I suspect you do too, is uh, with each and every chapter there is something called The Way It Was, in which we hear from two different players who, or and I suppose occasionally a coach, who were directly involved in the game. One from the winning team, one from the losing team. And I so appreciate this facet because somehow it it brings the game alive on, on a whole different level by by allowing us to hear from two of the gladiators who were directly involved. I'm I'm so glad that you brought that up, and I uh, that was a lot of work for people to to go you know to work the phones and find somebody from each game and debrief them and um, and and get. An extra vignette or snapshot. I I was just, you know, from last year's game. We have the hero, the cornerback, the the Patriots cornerback Malcolm Butler, talking about how earlier in the week, running uh, against the the scout team offense uh, down on the goal line, uh, the they had run the same uh, look slant pattern that uh, that the Seahawks called with. Uh, you know, infamously now, notoriously. And Malcolm Butler was beat on the play. And and he talks about how Coach Belichick walked up to him and said, you, you know, you, you got to get that. And so when, when it was real, you know, I watched Malcolm Butler, and I remember how aggressively he played that pass and how he just took the ball away. And it's, it's just a nice few brush strokes that I hadn't gotten anywhere else, and, and so thanks for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have time for just a couple more questions? Please. Um, I uh, want to mention the fact that at the end of the book, there is a ranking of all of the Super Bowls from best to worst, and uh, this is a really interesting list, and uh, of course it's... it's uh, sure to generate all kinds of, of disagreement, consternation uh, amongst people who have their own Super Bowl favorite that uh, is not ranked as highly as they believe it should be. Do you know anything about how this ranking list uh, came about? Were you part of it, a part of the calculations? And uh, what do you think about uh, the list as it uh, appears here? I was delighted to not be included in this process. And, <laughs> um, I, But it's uh, you know, it is a formula. It's not. It's not completely subjective. There are one, two, three, four, five categories. So, uh, 
you get a points you get points for uh, lead changes, uh, you know, fourth quarter drama, whether or not the team was an underdog, historical significance, and memorable player plays. And and so the the you know number one was the Giants' 17-14 win over uh, New England in Super Bowl XL11, which uh, of course is uh, you're going to let me know as soon as possible. But it was a helmet catch by David Tyree, and if you remember, Eli Manning dropped back, and he was sacked. It looked like he was sacked three different times, and Eli incredibly showing escapability and and finding David Tyree, who has since faded from the landscape. Um, I guess the only, my only quibble would be that even, even in a route sometimes, uh, and so the, the routes have all settled to the bottom, you know, uh, you know, 40 through 49. Um, but even in a lopsided game, for instance, um, the, the 85 Chicago Bears, so this would have been in the 86 Super Bowl, dismembered Tony Eason and the New England Patriots. But it was historic. It was, this was the best defense's Buddy Ryan's uh, defense for Coach Ditka. Uh, it was the best defense you've ever seen in the NFL. And so it was something. You know, you were witnessing something you would never see again, and so it didn't deserve to be. Sometimes there's a sort of rubbernecking appeal to these routes, and there have been a number of, of uh, you know, really games that were over by halftime, and which is one of the reasons that Commissioner Ozell was came around to it and realized they needed they needed a very entertaining halftime show in case you know the Cowboys were slaughtering the Buffalo Bills or or whatever. Um, yeah, I like the rankings. It mostly, a book like this is is basically fodder for argument, uh, trivia. You know, it's sort of the barstool conversations. You got to you got to have lists. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, I appreciate your point uh, about how. And I, I think maybe even in your introduction, you mentioned the fact that sometimes a lopsided game like Seattle beating Denver forty three to forty three to eight can be really intriguing in this case uh, to see the Seattle defense humbling the great Peyton Manning. Uh, I mean, there was something really, really fascinating about that, even if the game was never close or uh, in any doubt. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it isn't always just about how close a game is fought. Sometimes there is something really fascinating in a clinical uh, destruction of, of an opponent by right. someone who's vastly superior. Certainly in the game of tennis, sometimes a, a, a slaughter can be a really interesting thing sometimes. There's something Shakespearean about it, and there's such a buildup. Uh, you know, this is the only game of the season for which there's a two-week buildup, uh, which is a, a week too many, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and so the hype machine goes into over, overdrive, and the pains to, uh, you know, the, the, the celebrations of, you know, the genius of Peyton Manning um, has an extra week uh, to be amplified. And, and then the, to see him brought low, yeah, there's, there's something um, 
perversely satisfying uh, about that. Um, and it wasn't just Manning, although he, he looked he looked certainly um, didn't look like himself. I think it was the first play from scrimmage. There was a bad snap. Anyway, it just it was this. Uh, fascinating entropy that takes place mm. and uh, seems to take place more often in the Super Bowl. Absolutely. And we want to remind people that if they look at the book, you can certainly, as a Packers fan, of course we have lots of Green Bay Packers fans uh, listening, uh, you can explore each and every one of the Packers appearances in uh, the Super Bowl. I think five in all, uh, all but one ending in victories. And um, for Chicago Bears fans, you can see the Bears. And uh, I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan as well. And it's, of course, really fun to read about the uh, incredible uh, successes which the Steelers have had in this big game. Let's finish up with your second essay, which is called Don't Touch That Dial. You briefly mentioned it earlier, in which you chart the uh, dramatic transformation of the halftime show uh, for the Super Bowl. I mean, in, in some respects, this is a perfect mirror of, of how the stature of the game has, uh, has changed over the years, but it's also uh, very much an indication of, of uh, the excess that is also a mark of this <laughs> extravaganza. Uh, on a really personal level, what do you think of this transformation of the halftime show for the Super Bowl? Well, it was, fun to, it was fun to do a deep dive on it just because uh, when I was younger and more cynical, I, I would think, and, and this is around the time we were getting, uh, we were having up with people uh, foisted on us. This is the, the kind of chipper uh, group of young performers whose talent level ranged, I think, between I think I put it between high school variety show and waiting for government. They were, there was a, there was, uh, it was just this incomprehensible, uh, it was busy. It was, there was no theme. Um, they meant well, it was too much and it made too little sense. Um, but what ended up happening was that, uh, there was some Super Bowl. I think Dorothy Hamill was skating around during halftime. I'm not sure how they got ice on the on the field. Oh, I remember that. It was a small little uh, circular area, and she, not enough to do much of anything, mostly a couple yeah. little spins. But yeah, that was a bad miscalculation. Well, that was the that was the winter that Fox uh, had counterprogrammed and and said, "Hey, listen, we all know how lame the halftime show is, so come on over to Fox for halftime." And in Living Color, uh, they had a special show, and it was screamingly funny. It was raunchy, uh, the, the Wayans brothers. And, and the NFL got clobbered, and that was a turning point for them. They said, okay, this, we, we need to kind of rise above the, the, the dinner theater caliber entertainment. And I think they went out and got Diana Ross, and they started to take it more seriously. And the, the halftime show thereafter has been – built around one, uh, you know, mega performer. And so it's become the most watched concert of the year. Uh, and then there was, of course, the, uh, the Janet Jackson uh, reveal, the inadvertent or advertent reveal, who, depending on who you want to believe, after which uh, the NFL uh, sort of went cautious, conservative. Uh, they, they went with, uh, you know, a series of... Uh, aging uh, male rockers, um, 
a period of time I refer to as ARP with people, and um, which is kind of inside humor. And they've sort of gotten the drill down. The the Madonna halftime performance was the the ratings actually bumped up during during that halftime. And uh, but they're all they're all really chasing Michael Jackson. His uh, I thought it bogged down at the end. There was sort of a We Are the World triacle. Um, but in the beginning, uh, Michael Jackson was. He was on fire, and he he put on a fantastic show out in Los Angeles. It's a, a really intriguing. Uh, I find myself as I uh, watch the the halftime show often wondering how many football fans watching the game are enjoying this. And you know, most of the time, I'm not. I know I'm not, but it's not my kind of music. But of course, they're they're tr- they're aiming for a wide swath of of young America, I suppose, in the choices that they make. Uh, I just sometimes wish that, uh, in a sense, they were aiming for something that would have even broader appeal. That you know, my that my father-in-law would enjoy watching or right. i mean i mean right. there's a whole lot of americans watching this super bowl and i f- somehow feel like this halftime extravaganza is not designed with all of us in mind in a sense and maybe it can't be maybe that's impossible i remember watching the black eyed peas a few years ago and just thinking of my octogenarian father in rhode island and and wondering and, and just thinking what he must have been thinking, which is like, when, at what point did I lose the thread here? You know, he's, <laughs> he, he, you know, just, just the outfits, let alone the music. But, you know, I talked to an NFL uh, executive VP about this, and they're, they are the multi-generational family that goes to Vegas and is trying to find a show. Do you go to a magic show? Do you go to a Cirque du Soleil? No, that's too racy. So, um, it's you. You can't get it right. Um, I, I think I put it something along the lines of they're they are trying to find entertainment that would stretch like one of uh, Keith Richards' neck waddles across multiple demographics, and it's it's an impossible errand. Uh, so maybe they've they've stopped trying, um, but they were because you're 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 doomed to fail. And I think a lot of people aren't enjoying it, but don't forget people like me who, even if it's bad, enjoy making fun of it. You know, there, are, there, are people, <laughs> right. there are people at the Super Bowl party uh, who are gathered around you know, mocking it, and there's something to be said for that, too. Right. It's, tell our listeners who Lucille Walker is. She's somebody mentioned in your uh, very interesting essay on, on halftime entertainment. Yeah, well, she, Lisa Walker, God bless her, uh, is the widow of Tommy Walker, also known as Tommy the Toe, who was a child actor. Uh, he actually, is, he, you know, his dad was a musician. He was a young musician. He's playing, uh, he's leading the band in an old movie called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But he was a World War II veteran who came back, and he was a hero. He uh, and uh, matriculated at USC and was a, both a kicker and played in the marching band. He was the guy with the baton who led it, actually. So for extra points and field goals, he would come down from the stands, take off his Shaco hat, you know, the big hat, and and kick, and he actually got a tryout offer with the Redskins, but instead took a job with Walt Disney. He was a showman 
And he was the guy who first went to Pete Rozelle and said, how about if, how about if we do something special for the Super Bowl halftime? Let's have an extravaganza. And Roselle famously said, why would we want to spend that kind of money? It's when everyone gets up to go to the bathroom. Uh, and so he, uh, he won. In the early Super Bowls, uh, I have to say, Tommy Walker had a great sense of, uh, oh, of music. You know, he was the guy who, who brought in the, the, fantastic marching bands from, um, from the all-black colleges in um, the Southwest Athletic Conference. I'm talking about Grambling and Texas Southern. And they, you know, he just had a great sense of showmanship that uh, that, they, they, that they lost their way a little bit for a while, I think. Uh, and then... Uh, now, now maybe, and so Lucille Walker. I went to visit her in uh, Southern California, and she she uh, made the same lament. And uh, you know, maybe they're finding their way now. <laughs> she, uh, you, you, she, she tells you about the Super Bowl uh, number four, in which Tommy's halftime show uh, employed twenty thousand balloons, fifty American flags. 30, uh, 3,000 pigeons, 37 muskets, and three cannons, all for an on-field reenactment of the Battle of New Orleans. And uh, you quote her later in the essay as saying that what, what America has always been hungry for is pageantry. And uh, I guess that's, uh, that's uh, as much as anything, what the, what the modern-day Super Bowl is about. I think Tommy's shows were, what I, the word I was searching for earlier was... Um, Coherence. They're the the Super Bowl, you know, Elvis. Uh, one year they had a big magic trick, and you had to put on 3D glasses, and it was sponsored by Pepsi. Yeah, and it was Elvis Presto, a solid gold dancer, uh, who I think had been a little down on his luck, but got this gig. And it was just, it was incoherent. Um, and uh, so, yeah, she was. She was longing for the days. It's, it's always easy to look backwards, um, but she felt that Tommy had gotten his due, and, and it made her sad. And um, we spent a nice afternoon together, just looking through some old scrapbooks. Hmm. Well, that essay is a really uh, lovely piece. I think it has also appeared in the pages of the magazine itself. I remember uh, reading at least something like it in Sports Illustrated. It was fun to return to it and, and learn so much about this aspect. And of course, we want to remind people that the book, by and large, uh, focuses mostly on the game of football and the way that it is played. And of course, we hear not only about the luminaries who have made such a huge impact on the game, but also hear great stories about obscure players who have also figured one way or another. I think you tell us the story of a Green Bay Packer by the name of Max McGee who uh, scored the first touchdown in the first Super Bowl and had a little too much to drink the night before. Was that a story in your essay? You know, I have uh, at various times returned to the, um, yeah, the cautionary tale of Max McGee. Um, I'm sure all Packers fans are familiar uh, for whatever reason, it's uh, you know his his account was one that uh, that my people, the Murphys, uh, I don't know, just sort of related to. But it's you know always be ready if you're a backup. Um, but same, you know, Don Beebe. I remember tracking down Don Beebe, the Buffalo Bill, who 
gave the Bills their only highlight in uh, in a rout. Uh, the, the Cowboys were just taking it to them, and Leon Lett had recovered a fumble, or, or perhaps uh, he was rumbling 50-some yards with an interception return, but he put his, he held the ball out uh, early, celebrating, and Don Beebe stripped him, and the Cowboys uh, you know, were not able to run up the score. And so I got Don Beebe and Leon Lett together to, uh, to just talk about what the play had meant. Um, and that was one of the reasons that that Super Bowl wasn't sort of at the very bottom because it had a memorable play. Well, of course, we can look back over the rich history of the Super Bowl and all of the memorable plays that have been part of this great game in this really terrific book. Again, it's called Super Bowl Gold, 50 Years of the Big Game. It comes to us from the good folks of Sports Illustrated with a really interesting introduction by Austin Murphy. Austin Murphy, thank you for being so generous with your time, and congrats to you and your colleagues at Sports Illustrated for putting together this terrific book, worthy of the assignment. Thank you. I've done a lot of these hits, and nobody has uh, has really done their homework the way you have. And so I'm respecting you and thanking you for the um, the incisive questions. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much.